The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Your faces, some people I haven't seen in a while, and quite a few people that I don't know. So it's nice to see this Sangha continuing to grow and develop. Um, I just want to make a few uh, mentions of some of the programs I have coming up. You can find out all the details just by checking um, our website at um, imsb.org for Insight Meditation South Bay. But this Saturday we have a day-long on the four elements meditation, the four elements of the body. Um, And we're doing a series on... on Saturdays, one Saturday per month, that are working with different meditations related to the body. So this month, it's the elements. Next month, it'll be reflections on on death and some of the corpse meditations. And um, our usual group is Tuesday nights. Um, I also... um, often teaching um, on the concentration and jhana practices, and I'll be having one retreat this year, which will be in June. And there are all flyers um, on the back ledge. But tonight, I wanted to speak about reflection. Did you have any thoughts, any reflections during this last meditation? Were any of your thoughts original? Brilliant? Were they even the things that you would want to be thinking? When we look closely, sometimes we find that our thoughts just aren't as insightful as we would wish. They tend sometimes to circulate around habitual patterns, linking associations and repetition and Sometimes it turns out that our thoughts just aren't really all that thoughtful. Instead of a skilled, directed, and wise application of the mind, many times the thoughts just wander and move through a kind of proliferating tendencies of mind, what in the Pali language is called papancha, or translated as conceptual proliferation. Papancha, or proliferation, does very little to bring us into a deep insight into the nature of things. Sometimes when we use the term thought in meditation, people feel like it's a rather negative term in the context of meditation, whereas reflection has more positive implications. But thought and reflection are essential components of of the practice, but they must be a wise use of thought, a wise reflection. Reflection allows the experiences of life to touch us, to move us, to transform us. The Buddha taught what he called yonisomanasikara, or the wise use of the mind, sometimes more simply translated as wise attention. He didn't teach, don't think. Thoughts arise. It's part of having a functioning mind and body. But we don't need to be limited to habitual thinking, to the conditioned patterns that rehash the same content, very often the story of our lives, again and again. 
We can cultivate the art of skillful reflection, an art that transforms the repetitive, superficial level of thinking into a deeper reflection, a quality of reflection that has the potency to lead to transformative insight. A deep calmness is needed to support effective reflection. And so it's worthwhile to spend some time dedicated to the development of calmness, tranquility, samatha, or samadhi in the meditation. We might use the still posture, the stable body. We might use the breath to calm the mind. We might cultivate tranquility in both the body and a peaceful quality in the mind. Tranquility and stillness can be balanced by clarity and energy. And this combination makes penetrative insight possible. Because meditation is not about simply creating placid quietness of mind. Skillful meditation involves a dynamic interplay of seven awakening factors. Three are arousing factors, three are calming or stabilizing factors, and one, mindfulness, is a balancing factor. So we have the seven factors of mindfulness, investigation, joy, effort, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. A peace of mind will not be sustained through simply attaining a quietude or an equipoise of mind, but it will be realized through a penetrative insight, an insight that can be quite invigorating. Simply put, a balanced mind with balanced factors supported by wisdom creates the conditions that are conducive to liberating insight. Wisdom is not just one obvious thing. As you are probably familiar, there are many lists in Buddhism. Are you familiar with the three kinds of wisdom? No. Well, the first is a wisdom that arises through listening and hearing. It's called suttamayapanya. The second is a wisdom that arises through reflection and thinking. It's called chintamayapanya. And the third is a discernment or wisdom that arises through cultivation and development, and that's called bhavanamayapanya. We need all three kinds of wisdom, all three kinds of discernment. The first that is mentioned is listening. Listening is important, deeply listening to the experiences of the present moment, patiently allowing our experiences to unfold moment by moment, might be thought to be a listening quality, listening to the vitality of the present moment. So we might, in this sense, consider mindfulness practice to be an art of deep listening. But traditionally, Suttamayapanya refers to how we hear the Dhamma teachings. I'm really glad that you've all come out tonight, even though it's a little drizzly out. 
Sometimes it seems like it's more convenient, even efficient, to just download podcasts and listen to them while we're driving or while we're working out at the gym. But I think something really important happens when we take some time to go someplace, to meditate together in community, and to listen fully and deeply as a practice to the Dhamma teachings. In the Udana, it was said, on that occasion the Lord was instructing, rousing, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus with the Dhamma talk connected with Nibbana, and those bhikkhus being receptive and attentive, and concentrating the whole mind were intent on listening to the Dhamma. Now, if someone in this assembly was to clear his throat or make a noise, it's said that others would shush him to be quiet because they wanted to fully listen, to concentrate on the teachings, and to remember what was said. And many were even capable of accurately reciting the discourse later. It wasn't merely casual listening, and they did not expect the teachings to be entertaining. When you listen to Dhamma talks, do you ever try to recite it later? Do you ever try to just remember what was said later? (laughs) Or a basic outline? It's quite a practice to just reflect on what we have heard, to see what parts of it we might remember. Most of us don't have the skill or the training to recite teachings that we have heard. But you might hear something in a talk, maybe just a sentence that you feel resonates with you or touches you in some way. Maybe that one sentence intrigues you or you're caught by a remark or a question that's asked. Maybe it's just a single word. You can take what was heard, even if it's just a phrase or a word, and reflect upon it. Cultivate chintamayapanya. Allow wisdom to arise through reflection and thinking. But it's easy to misunderstand what reflection refers to. Because some people hear the instruction to reflect or to contemplate the teachings, and then they go home and they try to analyze and figure it out. Contemplation and meditation in in the Dhamma involves a very still and quiet use of the mind. We enter into the experience that is present. We open, receptive, but with the quality of interest and curiosity. The art of reflection depends upon the willingness to listen with interest, but also with patience, so that we receive the teachings and perhaps hold a question intimately without having to make it conform to our our identity by fitting our previously held views, by creating an experience, or by grasping an answer to the question. A false sense of satisfaction can come when we grasp an answer. 
We might feel complete because we know it, we got it, we understand it. In contemplative reflection, we pick up something that we're intrigued by. We pose a question to ourselves. But we don't look for a neat and complete answer. In fact, we abandon the desire for conceptual completion. And we're simply sensitive to being touched by the question, or by the word, or by the phrase. Touched, perhaps, by an encounter, maybe the sensation of the breath, maybe the temperature of a tear, maybe the coolness of the air. To hold an experience or to hold a question in a state of vivid interest without intellectually conceptualizing or solidifying an answer or a view or an opinion about it. We instead let our engagement with it transform us. Gently and innocently, opening to the questions in the spiritual life, opening to the Dhamma teachings that we hear. This is very different than just trying to understand intellectually or memorize what teachings we've heard. It's not about trying to take written notes or pursuing any kind of analytical inquiry. Reflective contemplation is stiller, more open. We allow ourselves simply to be touched by something even if we do not understand it. And sometimes we are touched by things that are so simple that we may think it doesn't even merit our inquiry. But I tell you, I have had insights around the simplest things. Some moments have transformed my life, and I remember them by very simple encounters with a sautéed mushroom the cool handle of a doorknob, seeing the grass blow in the wind, watching the ice melt and crack, and feeling the progression of a muscle spasm. There's so much simple that's worth our observation and worthy of our reflection. We do not know when transformative insight will arise. And so we can be curious about many things, the simple as well as the complex. Sometimes in meditation we feel our breath as we've never felt it before. In the feeling of the in-breath, we might be touched by the intimacy of life. Not me and my life, but just life itself. What do we do when we're touched by the breath? Do we start to calculate how many beings on this planet are breathing? How many animals? How many people? How many organisms are we sharing this breath with? And then try to send loving kindness to all of them? That would get very complicated. Perhaps we can just rest in the experience of being intimately moved. Perhaps you're meditating and you feel pain in your shoulder. 
Instead of just worrying about the aching body and how it's aging and falling apart or might need rotator cuff surgery or whatever, we can look closely at the changing constellation of sensations. Not necessarily to name every sensation or to become enthralled with the precision of our mindful awareness or be seduced by the variety and the intricacy and the rapidity of the changing sensations or feel so important because we see many sensations arise and pass away. The only Vipassana meditators would feel important about that. But can we instead allow the recognition of impermanence of actually perceiving changing sensations, impermanent sensations, to touch us. Because when we see the impermanence of this body, we sense our vulnerability. We sense our mortality. Seeing impermanence, we know this life and this experience, and for that matter, everything of mind and matter is uncontrollable unsatisfactory, empty. That's not a depressing insight. That's actually a liberating insight. Brings lightness and joy. It helps us let go. And so I ask, what is worthy of your reflection? What have you been touched by? Perhaps you might like to ponder a question. Maybe a simple question that helps us be mindful, like, what is actually happening now? Or, what needs to be known to be free? Or you could pick up something from the discourses of the Buddha. What can be said to be mine? Am I this? Is that mine? Or a heartful question, where is the love in this? Or what can be let go? What can be released? It's not a project of trying to come up with the most sophisticated or spiritual questions because we're not interested in accumulating the best answers. Instead, we're simply sensitive to what touches us and we open and feel that. We examine it long enough to awaken with it. When we sense the value of an experience or an insight, this is the time to reflect upon that experience or upon that insight, to allow it to mature and transform us, to feel the insight with every cell of our being. This reflection can milk the nectar of insight out of our experience. Reflection functions to draw out liberating insight from experience so that we are actually transformed by the insights that we've had. Transformed to the point that we cease to cause suffering. But what hinders wise reflection? I want to mention just a few common obstacles. The first is the common desire to get a quick answer. 
Often when we have an answer to something, we feel validated because, oh, we're so smart. (laughs) We're intelligent. We get it. We have the answer. If we go to an answer quickly, even if it's the right Buddhist answer, we just are not staying long enough with the question for a genuine insight to occur. Another obstacle tends to be a misunderstanding that A better meditation is a meditation when we're not thinking, when the mind is so concentrated that no thought arises. We may spend so much time letting go of thoughts that we forget to apply the concentrated mind to insight. We forget to take the time to balance our concentration with the dynamic engagement of wise reflection. The third obstacle I want to mention is the conceptual recognition of the teachings. Ah, Now, you might think, what do you mean that's an obstacle? It's really good when you're listening to a talk to be able to say, yes, seven factors, I know those, seven, seven factors of enlightenment. Oh, she's structuring that according to the Four Noble Truths. I get that. Ah, Eightfold Path, that's what that is. And have enough lists in your background to be able to... Um, to uh, anticipate or understand the structure of a teaching. This can be helpful, but sometimes we have an experience that conforms to an experience that we've read about, maybe an experience of insight or an experience of one of the stages of awakening or maybe one of the concentrated states of jhana and absorption. And then we compare our experience with what we had already read about or heard about. For example, maybe we experience changing phenomena so clearly. We're seeing everything change. We really are in touch with impermanence. And we say, ah, I'm at the stage of arising and passing away. This insight knowledge of arising and passing away. Or we have an experience of of the not-self characteristic of things. And we say, I am having the experience of emptiness. Basically, we are beginning to have a glimmer of profound insight, but the mind jumps so quickly to a concept about it, to conceiving of it through this conceptual formation, that we've abandoned the direct insight, the direct experience in the present moment to compare it with preconceived ideas, to secure our identity through grasping an idea or a view about what it represents. By going too quickly to the concept, whatever is known, we've lost the profundity of the question. We don't need to compare our experience with what we think it should be or what we want it to be. We don't need to compare our meditative experiences with what we've read in the texts or other people's practices or what we hear in talks. It's important to slow the process, to hold the question long enough to be transformed by it, and to value being moved, to delight in being moved by the teachings, and to resonate with the simple joy that comes through the encounter of reality, a direct, insightful encounter with the present moment as it is. So even if our ideas are brilliant 
I would encourage you to refrain from conceptualizing too much about what is happening in the development of your own meditation practice. Another obstacle might sound strange to some of you because I'm going to say that an overemphasis on the here and now is actually an obstacle. Now, of course, lots of instruction is given and very wisely to be present with things as they are because this um, turns the mind away from the tendency to be drift, to drift off in thought. We have to practice and diligently practice interrupting that stream of papancha, of conceptual proliferation. Every time we find the mind wandering, we let it go and we return to the here and now, simply sitting and breathing. This stabilizes the mind. When the mind becomes stable, then we can trust it to reflect wisely. Then an experience of the past has a chance to reverberate within us, not cling to us, not obsess the mind with worry or remorse or have the mind dwell in it. But we might turn over within the mind a thought, a reflection of a previous encounter. We might learn from our events by mulling over them by wise reflection. This kind of reflection is not a kind of rumination. It does not reinforce beliefs or create worry or justify grudges. Genuine reflection helps us understand our intentions for engaging in an action, our experiences while we are acting, and we learn from our actions by reflecting on how they occurred, how they turned out, what their effects turned out to be. We can develop a kind of reflection that helps us not only apply the lessons of our lives, but see in a way that is fresh, a way that loves the inquiry without needing to grasp the answer. Because if there's a tendency to contract around analytical thinking, we might get kind of tense. Sometimes we might even get a headache or feel pressure around the eyes. We can recognize this desire to understand as a formation of the I. I want to understand self-construction. And we loosen that grip around the I formation and willingly rest back into an open reflection that is equally okay with not knowing as knowing. We might also be careful not to use the insight into impermanence to dismiss profound experiences that actually have happened. Oh, it's just impermanent. It's of no consequence. Some meditation practices emphasize insight into impermanence at the exclusion of everything else. So all that matters is observing impermanence and less, eff- less attention is given to renunciation, 
reflection, curiosity, wisdom, effort. On some retreats for me, it seemed as though the experience of impermanence was so vivid that by the time I got to my next interview, there was no point in, um, in reporting what had happened in the previous meditation because it was past. You know, it had happened 15 minutes ago. Who cared? Long gone. It can feel when we're so in tune with impermanence, it can feel almost dishonest to be reporting something that was so old. But if we emphasize this approach too much, then we can lose the potency of our own experiences, the possibility to learn from our own experiences simply due to a lack of attention. I spent a number of years living with a Hindu guru in India named Punjaji. And one of the things that he um, was renowned for and had a hugely positive influence on was that he made a lot of people's experiences. It didn't matter when they happened. It didn't matter if they happened with him in that room that day, the previous week, or 20 years ago. And he, they were just still telling him about the experience. He would make a fuss about it in the most joyful and delightful way. He'd encourage people to write poetry and enlightenment verses and share their laughter and their joy about the insights that they had had, no matter when they had them. He really honored and respected every insight. But we have to be careful not to confuse honoring insight with identification with insight because identification builds those self-formations through attachment to the insight. Students sometimes experience profound insights or beautiful meditative states of the meditative absorptions called jhana or even genuine experiences of the the insight knowledges or the stages of awakening and enlightenment. And students can be quite impressed with our own accomplishments. They might want to tell the teacher and actually hear it confirmed or hunger for a kind of approval or recognition of it. I think we all can be a little sober about our experiences, and be careful to not be overly impressed by the amazing things that we might see as our meditation practice develops. Because anything that is new can seem impressive. Much like a child that learns a new skill, it seems so impressive at the time. But, you know, maybe by the time you're an adult, an adult, it isn't all that impressive. I remember uh, seeing a little child jump off the curb. Mommy, mommy, watch me, watch me. Jump off the curb. It it was such a big height for this child. It really, from that perspective, was very impressive. (laughs) But, you know, as the child grows, it's not going to be so impressive. And yet the role of the mother, of course, is to be delighted with that accomplishment, to um, praise that accomplishment. And sometimes... um, 
when people tell their experiences to a teacher and hear encouragement and hear praise, sometimes it's meant to encourage, like the child who jumps off the the step. Very good, very good, but continue. (laughs) You know, learn more. Um, If we are too attached or too hungry for that approval, we might think it means more than it actually does. There are many, many different accomplishments and attainments that we will have as we develop our concentration and our insight. And these are wonderful and marvelous. They should be sources of great joy for all of us. But we don't need to gloat over our successes to the point that we fall into complacency. There actually is no ego operating in genuine insight, and there's no self to be recognized or to want to be confirmed. The Buddha said, And when this venerable one regards himself thus, I am at peace. I have attained Nibbana. I am without clinging. That too is declared to be a clinging. So we honor our experiences. How? By reflection, wise reflection, and diligent practice. By milking the honey out of our experience, we may not need to create more and more great spiritual experiences. Recognizing impermanence brings insight to the conditioned nature of things, and it has the power to uproot clinging to everything that is conditioned. But there is an understanding beyond the conditioned, an understanding that knows impermanence is not the ultimate truth. Impermanence is only a characteristic of conditioned phenomena. If we're not overly fascinated by impermanence as the be-all and end-all of insight in insight meditation, we can remain open to discovering a possibility of realizing the unconditioned, the changeless, the deathless liberation. Then perhaps the experiences that you've already had might be enough to awaken with. And perhaps the experience that you're having right now is enough to awaken with. Let's have a moment of two or quiet of quiet and then we'll see if there's some questions or comments.
So do you have any questions or comments? I'm curious to how, uh, what inspired you to spend so much of your life meditating? Oh, what inspired <laughs> me to spend so much of my life meditating? You know, eight years went by really fast. <laughs> and it was accumulated. The longest stretch was only ten months. Although I have to admit, ten months did seem like a long stretch. You know, it may not be that different than what, most, what brings most people into this room tonight. When I first started my meditation practice, I had very personal and mundane reasons for wanting to meditate. Um, but very quickly, very quickly, I realized, wow, there's a lot more potential in this practice than the simple things that brought me in the door. So I may have walked into my first meditation class when I was in high school, and I just thought a little stress reduction would be a really good thing because it was high-pressured, you know, going off to college soon, you know, all that stuff. So I thought a little stress reduction, but very quickly the potential of this practice and the depths of calm and clarity um, were quite remarkable. And every, um, every, t- every meditation... Well, I didn't, not every meditation and every day, but it seemed as though there was a, a possibility to explore the mind in a um, very profound way. So when I attended my first 10-day retreat, I was convinced, and I've never doubted since, that, um, that the meditative path is one of the most important things that we can do. Uh, we do a lot of things in life. You know, we learn lots of different skills. We engage in lots of different things as we're lay people. And a lot of it feels fine, but, eh, you know, could take it or leave it. I honestly feel like I have never wasted a single minute in meditation. Because even if I spent it thinking, at one point I woke up. <laughs> and I thought, ah, wow, okay. And the power of that overcomes all of the, the, the um, you know, the drifting thoughts and things. Yeah. The development of the mind is really rich. It's the one thing I think we're responsible for, that we're really responsible for the quality of our own mind, and we really can affect that. If there's any pattern that disturbs you, if there's any um, roots of, of, of greed or hate or tendencies for anger or or, or um, uh, cravings, um, uh, ignorance, confusion. Uh, we can look at our own minds, and we can work with those. It may take some diligence. It may take some time. It may not transform overnight. But I do think it's the meditative path is what is going to transform the, the roots of greed, hate, and delusion in the world and bring us to a profound inner peace and contribute to an outer peace. There was another question. Right there. Please. Okay. So, um, again, in your talk, like you're talking about insights and 
um, reflecting on them like internally. And then you spoke about also kind of just staying in that space to really kind of absorb it, which I resonate with. But also part of me does really, when I have insights, even though I'm resonating internally with it, I have this really strong desire to share it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with everyone, like sometimes I feel like so overwhelming, like I'm gonna explode. Like it's really kind of powerful within me. So I guess, um, I don't know, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Like I, I do think there's a lot to what you're saying with internally holding it and reflecting internally. Um, but I'll, I guess also sharing it in a wise way, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Sharing it in a wise way is really important. And how do you know if it's wise? We have to look to see what the effect is. Does the insight deepen through the way that you share it? Or does it come to an end? Does it, um, does it um, feel as though sharing it dissipates the energy of it? Um, and we have to see for ourselves how we share it. Um, sometimes we'll want to share, um, but it can be helpful maybe first to just jot a few notes to ourselves and let it resonate within us and then share a bit and then to take from that sharing back into our meditation practice to contemplate it some, a little bit further. Just check that it is a wise reflection because sharing is, is marvelous. I recommend writing. I recommend sharing your insights with friends. I mean, what a wonderful thing. I mean, why get together and gossip? Get together and share your insights. You know, have a conversation about your insights about impermanence. Why not? You know, go out to dinner and have that be your topic of conversation. That would be, it would be delightful and it would be furthering of the insight. But just check that it is, that, it, that the way that you engage in the dialogue deepens the insight and allows you to hold it even more deeply to let it resonate further. Um, one of the things that I um, enjoyed the most about writing those, I wrote two books. Um, both on concentration practices, concentration and insight, uh, samatha and vipassana practices. And um, what I enjoyed so much about the writing process was the reflection that's included in the writing. (laughs) You know, you keep thinking about it and writing on it and contemplating it and fixing this paragraph and that sentence and how this one relates to that. And it keeps the mind circling around a topic. And dialogue with friends can also help that. But just check that you're not going from having an insight to reporting it and then, then the I coming up and claiming the insight. Because as soon as that I arises around it, then the richness of the insight has come to a, a stop. It's the nature of the I, of the construction of the I fixes experience and it limits the potential. Um, so I think, I think your, your point's very well taken, very well taken. And wise reflection can include dialogue. It can include writing. It can include sharing. It can include speaking. It can include many different things. Well, we're approaching 9 o'clock now, so I want to thank you all for your attention. It's lovely to see you. <laughs>